Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. His party has just one seat in the Commons and it wants more. But with disruptive protest groups like Just Stop Oil getting all the media attention, how can the Green Party break through? With me is the new deputy leader of the Green Party, freshly elected in September, and a member of the London Assembly, Zach Polanski. Welcome to The Bunker, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Zach, when I listen to Just Stop Oil and XR protesters, there's a desperation there. It suggests that they've given up on the hope that conventional politics can achieve anything to slow down climate change. Do you sometimes fear that they may be right? I think there's a real danger there. And I think this Conservative government have been very deliberate in that, in terms of taking away the mechanisms for people to be heard. We know even protests are now cracking down on increasingly, to the point where if you're even making what they call a disturbance or a disruption, which could just be making noise, you could be arrested. So I think there is a real fear that people are feeling increasingly disconnected from feeling like they can be represented or their voices can be heard. Um, I myself used to go out there and protest and sit on roads and all sorts of things. I'm now elected to the London Assembly. I chair the Environment Committee in London, so I don't feel the need to do that anymore. But there's a really important distinction there. I got elected under a system of proportional representation in London, which means every vote counts and the result represents what voters voted for. As your listeners will know, I'm sure, in the UK... Our MPs are elected under first pass for post. That's a broken voting system, which literally two countries in Europe use, which are the UK and Belarus, which is literally a corrupt dictatorship. So I think there's a really important question here about our electoral system, about fairness in politics, and about making sure we have politicians that don't have vested interests, that aren't funded by oil and gas companies, and ultimately can be held accountable by the electorate. And while that's not happening, and we're moving towards that, I can understand why sometimes people feel the need to go sit on the road or protest. What I'm doing as deputy leader of the Green Party is making the case to the nation as much as I can, and thanks for having me on today, that actually voting Green is another way of making sure we get representation and where we do have Greens elected, whether that's on councils or whether that's Caroline Lucas, who's more than punching above her weight, we do get things done and the difference a Green makes in the room. So what's your relationship with Just Stop Oil and XR? I mean, does it do their protests have an effect on what you do? Do you liaise with them at all or are you completely separate? We're completely separate. So we are in in the business of elected politics and essentially of campaigning, of putting our manifesto forward and getting people elected. Uh, It's up to Just Stop Oil to represent what they do. I think it would be unfair for me, though, to not uh, say that I have sympathy with their their aims. I think, you know, if we look at Insulate Britain, for instance, uh, a year or two ago, they're often presented by the mainstream media as this kind of radical militant arm, whereas actually their demand, I think, is fairly accepted now, even in mainstream politics. We need to insulate Britain. In the UK, we have some of the leakiest homes in Europe. And when I say leaky, meaning they're not insulated and so they're energy inefficient. We know in a cost of living crisis, the cheapest bill is the one you don't have to pay. And actually, one of the best things we can do to help the poorest people in the UK is to insulate their homes, get their bills down, and also help tackle the climate emergency too. So you're keen on insulation, obviously, and people know what you stand for, the Green Party, it's obvious. But do they know your policies in detail, do you think? I don't think they do at all. And if I give a big example, at the moment on the economy, we're calling for a wealth tax. That's a 1% tax on the wealthiest 1%. Now, that's come from the University of Greenwich in terms of their research. And that shows that could raise £75 billion a year, which we could be spending on a whole range of progressive measures. Now, I think what's within your question, though, is people know that we stand for protecting the planet. And that's really important. I'm not here to 
say otherwise, we really do care about the planet. It's fairly fundamental to our existence. But actually, we have a whole range of other policies too. Because one of the key things I'm, I'm really keen on saying is there's no environmental justice without social, racial and economic justice too. And what do I mean by that? Because it can't just be a slogan. But it's actually demonstrating that all of these other justices and important things that we need to do to make our society more equal, to make it more inclusive, to celebrate things like migration, to make sure that we've got a policing system that people can trust, that we have an international defence system that is working for us, but is also equitable and working towards a peaceful world. All of those things all relate to the environment too. So these things are inextricably linked. And too often, politics operates in silos, where people just look at one policy uh, without looking at the whole system. And something in the Green Party we're very keen on doing is looking at systems thinking and systems change. You've got one MP at the moment, Caroline Lucas in Brighton. How many are you aiming for at the next general election? Well, I'd love to see us getting up to five MPs. I think one of the key places we're looking at is in Bristol West. Carla Denyer, who is one of our co-leaders, so my colleague, has been working really hard there for a long time. And when I go out knocking on doors there, I'm increasingly hearing people say that they're sick of the two old parties and that Labour and Conservatives aren't delivering in different ways. I think... It's undoubtedly important to acknowledge that after 12 years of the Tories, people are really feeling it. And it's absolutely vital that we get the Tories out. And I think within that, we deserve better than not just for Tories. And if I look at Keir Starmer, for instance, this week, he was talking about migration in terms of point-based immigration. And I think we need a much more positive and bold voice about migration, looking at the fact that we wouldn't be Britain if we didn't celebrate the differences and the diversity that we have in this country, and making a positive story about that rather than just accepting it as something we need to on an economic case. And then just on a separate issue too, the Conservatives have put forward this idea of an economic black hole. And I feel like the Labour Party have just accepted that frame. But actually, there's a real risk here that we learn the wrong lessons from Liz Truss's failed experiment, which is that borrowing is a bad idea. Borrowing is a bad idea if you're funding unfunded tax cuts. But borrowing is a really good idea if you're borrowing to fund investment, particularly in green projects and big infrastructure projects, because we know that stimulates growth, not just economic growth, but growth in terms of our happiness, our well-being, in terms of a society that comes together and is functioning in a coherent way. And I think it's really important that we have a bold Green Party who are putting forward those arguments because we're rejecting the duopoly of Labour and the Conservatives. So you're after five seats. Are you ready to coordinate with bigger parties, you know, stand down candidates in one place, maybe persuade the Lib Dems to stand their candidates down in another to get a better shot in some constituencies? So we're a really pluralist party. Working with people and cooperating is absolutely in our DNA. It's really, really important. And again, in London Assembly, which is proportional representation, I work with other parties across the whole spectrum every day. And I do think it results in better decision making because you have to compromise, you have to negotiate. And then I think you get decisions that represent more what the people you represent would want, which sometimes is, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And together, you come forward with a compromise. And I don't think compromise should be a dirty word. We have a difficulty with the Labour Party, though. They refuse to talk to us. And at the moment, they're refusing to go into any negotiation whatsoever. In the Labour constitution, there are rules that they cannot stand down and they cannot work with other parties. And that's resulted in some awful consequences where really good Labour candidates have been asked to stand down or have deselected because they've just talked about working with other parties. I think, you know, at its heart, that's quite deeply authoritarian. So in the Green Party, our door is open. We are willing to talk. 
And I should say that for me, proportional representation would be an absolute red line. We now know that the Labour Party have voted to back proportional representation in overwhelming numbers. But the problem is Keir Starmer is saying no. My message to Keir Starmer is he needs to listen to his members. He needs to represent what they want. And they're saying loudly and clearly that they want a different kind of politics. So in principle, you'd be prepared to do a deal with Keir Starmer after the next election if proportional representation was on the table. But you're saying he won't talk to you. Exactly that. And again, I think our principles are to work with anybody who wants to work with us as long as we match their values. I think there's areas where we have deep difference with Labour, but I don't think it's any secret to know that we not support Labour, but we would understand Labour policies a lot more than we would ever support Conservative politics. So I think that's quite clear. But at the moment, that isn't even an option because Labour don't want to talk to us. Speaking of Labour, Keir Starmer has a green jobs plan, which he talked about a bit at his party conference. How much has that been fleshed out? I don't think the detail is there enough. Now, I don't want to be churlish. I applaud the fact that he's talking about green jobs. I think it's a vital conversation. And I'm pleased that that is further on the agenda now. But he's focusing particularly on things like manufacturing and actually things like energy and insulation. Again, they're totally missing from that plan. There's also a lot of talk about technologies that don't exist yet. So this idea of carbon capture and storage, for instance. I think there's a real danger that climate denial can turn into climate delay. And I don't think it's responsible for a leader to say that we're going to fix the climate emergency, we're going to get to net zero by using technologies that don't exist yet. Sure, they can be factored in, in terms of saying we hope they're there. But I think you clearly need a contingency for the world we live in right now that doesn't have that. And talking of the world we live in right now, there's also aviation. Keir Starmer was quite clear that he supports aviation and he supports aviation expansion. I don't think in a world where we know we need to clean up our toxic air, and you did an excellent episode on air pollution to plug another episode that you've done. In a world with toxic air and a world where we need to reduce our climate emissions, there isn't a space for what is called jet zero at the moment by the government. By doing jet zero, you miss net zero because it doesn't exist right now. And I think we need to be really clear about that and not fudge for boundaries. You're not Starmer's biggest fan, are you? I've heard you be quite critical about him. I'm not Keir Starmer's biggest fan at all. I think the most obvious thing to say, and this isn't my battle to have because I'm not a Labour Party member, but I think any observer could watch that Keir Starmer stood on a particular platform to be leader. And that is a platform that I wouldn't say I was a fan of, but was much more close to my values and to the Green Party's values. And we've seen him ditch that platform at every single possible opportunity. And I think when you try and appeal to everybody by being all things, you end up being absolutely nothing. And I think the biggest difference uh, between the Green Party and Keir Starmer is particularly uh, this migration conversation, but also his attitude towards protest. We've seen the Conservative government pushing through some of the most authoritarian measures we've ever seen. And of course, it was under New Labour with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown that we saw these kind of authoritarian measures start to creep in. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Keir Starmer has continued in that tradition. But you know, he was a human rights lawyer. And I just wish someone in that position would have a bit more voice or a bit more courage to say, actually, what's going on is not fair. The only time I've heard Keir Starmer talk about these new authoritarian bills is when he said that Labour would back tougher sentences for people who lock on. Now, those sentences at the moment, the way it's going, are looking at a year in prison. That is over double what you get for common assault. I just don't think this is proportionate. I think it's appealing to some of the worst instincts in our society. And I think we need stronger leadership in there. Uh, And when I say stronger leadership, more compassionate and authentic leadership that says, actually, if people want to protest, that's a vital part of our democracy. And we should stand up for that at every step. (music) 
Let's talk about COP26, because you were there last year representing the London Assembly. What did you learn there? I imagine it wasn't a wholly positive experience. It wasn't wholly positive, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I was really pleased to be there in terms of meeting with counterparts all around the world. As I said, I chair the Environment Committee, so I met with lots of Environment Committee chairs. Scottish Greens were there because, of course, Greens are in government in Scotland and Germany. So there was a really beautiful meeting where I met with ministers around the country from Green governments. And I think that was really inspiring to see places where our policies are being enacted and, and things are going really well. I think there's undoubtedly problems. I remember on the first day being sat on a panel that was about social justice, exactly what I said before, that you can't have climate justice without social justice. So essentially, I was telling a story about air pollution that frequently the worst, most toxic air happens in our cities. It's often with working class communities or people of colour. Those communities often, but not always, feel like they're not represented or they don't have access to power. That can be sometimes because they're busy feeding their kids, they're heating their homes, they're doing all of those things. They don't have time to engage with politics. So I was making these points and then the chair interrupted me for a moment and said, I think what you're saying is brilliant and we've just got a word from our sponsors. And then it was an insurance company that was selling water solutions in, in Africa that I've, I've looked up since and is not wholly ethical or coherent. And I think, you know, that was just one experience I had, but that run, you know, throughout that COP and also this year's COP, that idea of greenwashing and not really wanting to take the challenges full on. But without a doubt, the hope was when I left what we call the Ring of Steel, so the, the complex where COP26 was, and I went out on the streets and I met with communities, indigenous people, young people, people speaking with such clarity, conviction and hope about what the solutions are and what they demand from our governments. And when you hear and see the people who are on our side, you think, how can we not win this eventually? The question is, can we do it in time? And this year's COP, of course, COP27, seemed to be dominated by an agreement for essentially reparations or help for lower-income countries that suffer as a result of the climate emergency, not moving really ahead at all in terms of cutting emissions. Again, exactly the same thing. There's this huge hopeful part here, which is we were talking about loss and damage or repair, as I prefer to call it. I think the public are really getting there with that. And I think that is a huge step forward that people instinctively understand that the countries who are the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate chaos are those who are least resilient to deal with it and who have done the least to cause it. So it's only right that those who have benefited from empire, colonialism, from post-industrial revolution should pay their extra part to protect those countries. Your question is exactly right, though. You can't just throw money at something and there's a question about if we are going to even throw money at it because we haven't met the financial commitments we already have. So at the moment, this feels pretty meaningless. You have to reduce emissions. And all of these other conversations can't be a distraction from the fact we need to do things. If I look in the UK and London and specifically, or UK more generally, we need to make sure that we're enabling more walking and cycling, that we have better public transport. In London, it cannot be right that too often it is cheaper to drive your own private car than to get on a bus or get on the tube. And that is just not right. So we've got to really change the balance there because essentially we need to get people moving on to public transport, walking and cycling, which is also good for people's health as well and benefits the NHS. London is getting bigger. It's been getting bigger you know, since I moved here 20, nearly 25 years ago. Should it continue to get bigger? I think it's less a question about whether it's bigger or smaller, but a question of infrastructure and making sure that we have the right services for people. I think I can understand I would never defend someone making an anti-immigration argument, for instance. 
But I can understand their concerns that at the moment the NHS waiting list or uh, to get an appointment for your GP is absolutely astronomical. And that does scare people. I can understand when people feel like they can't get a place in a local school and they feel like they have to travel a long way because of school waiting lists. I can understand why all of these things can then be whipped up by populist politicians or those on the right. I think that's completely the wrong answer to this, though. The right answer is to invest in public services, to make sure that we're not cutting public spending, we're not engaging in austerity 2.0 as this government is, and actually make those arguments for why good public services are vital to a city and to a nation. So to answer your question more directly, I think it's fine if London grows, as long as we're making sure it's got the investment that it needs there. And in terms of the mayor, He often argues for more money, but I don't think it's about London getting more money. I think it's about London and other cities getting more powers to make their own money. I think devolution is vital because then essentially we have one of the most centralised governments in the world where they control the money and the power. And actually, we need to make sure that's being shared equally, because ultimately the way power should work is that people should feel like at the local level they have access to it, that they're able to spend it, and they feel like they have choices in the decisions that affect them. What's your take on the Green Belt? Because this is a social justice issue, housing in many ways, isn't it? People need better housing. They need more space. They haven't got enough, especially in big cities at the moment. But that means building more. How do the Greens feel about that? And how do they square that circle between more housing and the impact on the environment? It's a really good question. I think the number one first principle is we need to stop demolishing homes. So one of the worst things for the environment is something called embedded carbon. Carbon is what's in buildings. And when you demolish it, it's essentially causing a a double effect, which is one, you're building the home, which is causing carbon, but also you're destroying a home that could have been retrofitted and could have been designed differently. In France, in Paris at the moment, there's some really interesting architecture going on where they're taking old buildings that we probably would have demolished, but actually they're using really brilliant architects to look at other ways these buildings could be used of creating extensions on them and making sure that they're insulated. So I think that's the number one thing we have to do. We have to have a different paradigm about how we look at homes. I think the next thing is one of my favourite policies of my colleague, Sean Berry, who is former co-leader of the Green Party and also ran for London Mayor. She sits on the Assembly with me and she calls it the People's Land Commission, or rather with the campaigners, the People's Land Commission. People's Land Commission is essentially saying to local people where you've got land that's derelict, and that might include green space or brownfield sites, and it's not being used. What do you want to use it for? So one thing, for instance, I've been talking about a lot on the Assembly is um, urban food growing, so the ability for people to be able to grow their own food. In a cost of living crisis, this is vital that communities can come together and literally put their hands in the soil and grow their own food. I realise we've got to be careful with that argument. It doesn't sound privileged. I realise some people don't have the time and resource to grow their own food right now. But it does mean that those who are able to, or those who can create community campaigns so people are able to, that's an amazing opportunity to do that. But right now, too often, land is private or it's public land, but it's not being used for that. And I think people who live near that land should have the opportunity to demonstrate that. And then the third part is to make sure that where there's land that can be used to build homes, brownfield sites, for instance, that homes are being built, because essentially we need to make sure that we're getting people off the streets, that we're bringing down our renting crisis. Renting in London at the moment is absolutely ludicrous, and that's exacerbating the problem. So I think it's about making sure we have good quality housing. I don't think it's ever about saying you can't build here or you can't build there, but I do think it's also about protecting vital green space. I reject the argument that there's other spaces we can't build first. We know there's lots of places where homes can be built and homes can be developed, or crucially, extensions can happen to homes that happen already. But as long as it's with the remit and consultation with the people who live there or who live in the neighbourhood. And that can't be notification. It has to be consultation. Too often people are told what they have to think as opposed to a genuine listening exercise.
And you're actually, in terms of housing, you're living on a boat at the moment, aren't you? Uh, yes, that's right. So um, I was a property guardian for the last 10, 15 years. For those who don't know what that is, I was living in the old abandoned buildings often, uh, sometimes with 20 to 30 people uh, living in a vital community. Um, the idea of that is you pay much cheaper rent and you're protecting the building. Now, I've got a personal answer to this and a political answer. And the personal answer is I absolutely love doing it. I love people. So I love the fact that I would come home and live with a delivery driver, a chef, uh, actor, dancer. So you're living with a whole wide range of jobs and you're hearing people's opinions every day around the de- dinner table about what's going on for them. And I think as a politician, that was a vital part of my work to carry those voices as well as every voice I listen to with me. On a political answer, though, property guardianship cannot be the answer to a uh, problem with housing because essentially what you're saying is let's take this substandard home and make it cheaper. And that's a way for people to live in central London. But actually, we should have good quality housing, particularly for students, so they can have places to live too and, and no one should be homeless. So I think there's a, a huge issue that that needs to be changed. I moved on to the boat essentially because my boyfriend moved over from Bristol to live with me in London when I was elected deputy leader. And uh, I'd always wanted to live on a boat, so I decided it was time. How do you heat the boat? We have an oil radiator, so we, we have a mooring so I'm plugged into electricity. I'm very pleased to say that no wood burner is used on the boat because I'm often talking about the dangers of wood burning and the dangers of, of air pollution. And so it's vitally important that I live my politics. I hate wood burners. I just don't get the appeal. Do not see why you would want to pollute in that way. But I'm going to lose some listeners here when I say that. Well, I think it's vital on wood burners to say as well that the air is worse for people burning their own wood too. So I think people often hear that they're polluting the air. But actually what's missed is the worst effect on the people's lungs is for people actually burning the wood. So I, I agree. I think you know, it's definitely time to, to get rid of wood burners. Where are the Greens on nuclear power these days? Because you've traditionally been opposed. Are you still? Yeah, we are still opposed. I think nuclear power is too expensive and too slow. I can make lots of arguments about how it's dangerous and what do you do with the nuclear waste. But I think those arguments are almost, you can put them to one side because actually when you look at the energy crisis we have right now, it's really clear that renewable energy is the way forward and renewable energy is much cheaper right now than any other option. So I think that real um, investment in making sure solar, wind, tidal, hydro, that's really, really important that we have those investments. And I think looking at nuclear again is a little bit like Keir Starmer's argument about carbon capture and storage. It's talking about things that are in the future. The best metaphor I've heard for this, it's a bit like starting to invest in the fax machine right now. And actually, you've missed that moment. And I think uh, investing in nuclear would be the wrong thing to do right now when there's so many better, safer, cheaper options that are much quicker. Are there really, though? Because, I mean, the argument's often made that you just can't scale up renewables fast enough, especially in this country where we have enormous issues already with planning permission, getting anything done that it's too slow. Whereas a nuclear power station, yes, it takes a while, but it's it's a fairly limited footprint. You can build it. And once it's on stream, you are at least not burning fossil fuels. Well, we definitely need to look at planning permission. But I think even getting that changed or getting a kind of faster planning process will be a lot quicker than nuclear, which we're, we're literally sometimes talking two or three decades. It's a really long way away. I think I wouldn't accept the scalability argument. I think it's really, really doable. And I think the really interesting bit that's never been explored is community renewable energy. So I think when you can have renewable energy that is put in the heart of people's communities, 
there's always been this argument in the past that it's been unsightly or people don't want it. But I think as soon as people realise that having it in that area means they can have cheaper bills and actually that energy goes back to the community and can even uh, generate revenue for the community, I think when people make that argument, people get on board. So I think as so many things in politics, we saw this during the pandemic, you know, how quickly society changed in some ways. I think people can adapt really quickly. And I think a major investment in renewables is coming at some point. Of course, the big problem with this is that was starting to happen in 2014, 2015. And then David Cameron's government put a shutdown on the whole thing saying, let's cut the green crap. And that's put us back a decade. But actually, I think we've got to pick ourselves up from that, not fight old battles, but actually say, well, the best time to do this now is now, although, of course, it would have been better back then. Thanks so much for joining us, Zach. Thanks so much for having me on. At The Bunker, we aim to bring you in-depth interviews of the kind you won't get elsewhere. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you might like to back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomaszewicz, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.